And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, starting at chapter 5, as we've been looking through the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we'll be looking especially today at verses 10 through 12, but I'm going to read all of verses 1 through 12, once again, to give us the context here. As Jesus has been teaching his disciples, what does it look like to be a citizen in his kingdom? Uh, this whole series of teachings from Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is what's known as a Sermon on the Mount, right? Because Jesus is ascended to the mountain teaching his disciples. But he starts off that sermon by giving us eight things, what we traditionally call the Beatitudes, uh, these principles, these teachings of what does it look like to live in this, this kingdom of heaven, to be a citizen of, of God's kingdom. And so let's read through all of these Beatitudes. Uh, with the Lord's help, we'll be looking today at verses 10 through 12 specifically. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And now our verses for this afternoon. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And praise God for his holy word. Well, I want to begin this afternoon with a story. A story about a man named George Galatis. Uh, George was an engineer at a mill, the, the Millstone Nuclear Power Plant in Connecticut in the United States. And George was working there when he noticed that something was wrong. And George found that all of the hot fuel, this nuclear fuel, had been dumped into pools not designed to serve as nuclear dumps. And the pools threatened to release this radioactivity and this material throughout the plant that could and could cause a huge disaster. On other occasions like this, alarms would sound as the fuel was unloaded, and it was unloaded too soon, 65 hours after, uh, after a shutdown, far sooner than the mandated period of 250 hours. And 
Georgia supervisors often looked the other way with these violations because they knew that they were saving millions of dollars by cutting corners like this. But George had kind of seen enough. He was afraid that these violations could threaten the safety of the power plant, everyone working there and in the vicinity. George told one of his colleagues that they should contact something called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It's in charge of overseeing all the safety at these places. And his colleague agreed, you should contact them. But he warned George. He said, if you contact them, uh, you, your career will be over. You will be dog meat. So fearing this, George, fearing the safety of the plant, George went to his supervisors, to his bosses. He asked them to stop all of the hazardous practices, and they refused. And since many of his supervisors were churchgoers, George was confused. He was baffled. Because these are not small violations. George said these are not just some technical violations. These are moral violations. George warned his supervisors that not attending to these would lead to eventual shutdown of the plant, uh, likely hefty penalties, and even criminal investigations. But after two years, nothing had changed except, except the workplace environment. Wherever George went, when he went to the cafeteria, co-workers would leave. If George entered into a meeting, everyone would stop talking. Uh, soon, co-workers would spread rumors about George, that he was an alcoholic. And then his performance evaluation suffered after that. George began to go through an intense search, a search for God's guidance of what to do. He would wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning and search the scriptures and pray. And then every day at work on his lunch break, he would drive to a secluded spot, open his Bible, read, pray, asking God to direct him. And it was during one of those prayer sessions that George felt God was speaking to him as it were and asking him this question. George, are you willing to die for me? Now, George, though he did fear her for his physical safety a bit, George also understood. He realized that there were many ways that he could die for Christ. His livelihood could die. His career could die. His reputation could die. The, the, the environment at his home with his family, the well-being of that could die and be damaged. Because previous whistleblowers also in this type of situation had had their family dynamics blow up under the emotional strain. And George also knew that the owner of the power plant, if George kept going with this, the owner would likely enlist one of the most powerful law firms to come after him. How many men in their mid-40s, like George, high-paying job, could lose all of it and start a second career? What should he do? After months of prayer and study, George concluded, he concluded this, that no matter how much he was badgered, no matter how much he was mocked and scorned by his colleagues, God would never devastate him. So he decided to contact the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and they offered him no refuge, no protection. 
when George further talked with them to suspend the license of the power plant and what he was doing became very public. Pressure on him increased. Coworkers confronted him in the hallways and in the office. Some of them called him a fool. Others said he was a troublemaker. He was subtly intimidated and he was harassed for months and he had colleagues saying, why not George, why don't you just shut your mouth and do your job? Finally, at the end of it all, George left, he had to leave. And in the end, the power plant ended up having three of its reactors shut down later on at a cost of over $1 billion and criminal investigations were launched. Now, why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because one of the hardest things to do at all is to live as a Christian. To live according to the words of Jesus. To pursue a life of integrity and holiness before God and men. Especially when it's going to cost you everything. Some of you know this. It's not just a story for you. You've lived it. Some of you know this all too personally, all too painfully. You've lost a lot because of your integrity. But it's hard for all of us as Christians, whether you're five years old, whether you're 15 years old, whether you're 50 years old, whether you're a student or a teacher, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or whether you're in the office, it's difficult for any of us to live with integrity, with righteousness as a Christian. There are going to be so many people we're tempted to please, so many pressures on us to conform, so many powerful reasons that we should make other people believe we're just like them and what they want us to be. It's tough to live according to Jesus' teaching. And yet, and yet, brothers and sisters, in this last beatitude that Jesus is teaching to us, he makes you a stunning promise. Those who are persecuted for living righteously, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake can rejoice and be glad. Friends, this is one of the most, out of all the Beatitudes, this is the greatest paradox, I think, of all of them. How can someone who is persecuted, how can someone who is suffering for Jesus' sake be blessed? How can they be even rejoicing and glad over it? How can someone be under so much suffering and hardship that they can actually know Jesus even more? And yet, this is what Jesus is teaching us in this beatitude. Friends, you, you will be persecuted as a Christian if you're living faithfully for the gospel. You will be. Scripture is clear on that. But Jesus is equally clear here that those who are living for him can rejoice and be glad knowing that all earthly loss is nothing in comparison to, our, to your heavenly reward. And so if I'm going to summarize what Jesus is teaching us here in this beatitude, the main idea that I want you to walk away with today is simply this. Expect persecution for living for Jesus. Expect persecution for living for Jesus. But no. That joy is possible 
in the face of persecution. Expect persecution for living for Jesus, but know that joy is possible in the face of persecution. I think you can kind of see that main idea divided into my two points there that are for you in the insert. Just have two points this afternoon as we unpack this. How is that possible? That you can not only endure persecution, but you can even embrace it and rejoice over it. How is that possible in Christ's kingdom? Well, that's what we need to look at here as Jesus teaches us this. And before we get into these two points, though, let's just stop and notice here the passage as a whole in these three verses. I want you to notice something. Did you check or did you see the change in pronouns in this passage? All throughout these Beatitudes, Jesus has been saying, blessed are those who. And he does that again in verse 10, doesn't he? But then put your eyes on it again in verses 11 and 12. He doesn't say, blessed are those who. He says, blessed are you, right? He goes from those or them to you. He makes it very personal. So what's going on there? What are we to make of that? He's he's talking specifically to his disciples here, right? You, my disciples, who are come up to this mountain with me. Jesus is personalizing that. Uh, Some people read this and they think Jesus is actually giving a ninth beatitude here. This is a whole other beatitude in verses 11 and 12. I don't think that's actually what's going on here. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's given us the beatitude in verse 10. And then what he's doing is he's expanding on it. He's amplifying it. He's making it very personal. And I think he's doing that for a very important and compassionate reason. Because Jesus knows, friends, that you and I, when we're faced with this stark reality, that persecution is, is, is coming, living as a Christian, invites persecution. He knows, right, that you and I are scared. Or we should be a little bit worried, right? At the possibility of being persecuted. He knows that, friend. He knows. And in his compassionate way, he wants to comfort you and say, yes, this is the expectation for following me. Yes, you need to know if you're going to be a Christian, it's not just a bed of roses from here on out. It's not, as some people say, beer and Skittles. It's just all a bunch of good things. Uh, It's going to cost you something to follow me. And yet he's going to give you the grace to do it. That's what he wants you to see and know. The very start here by giving a personalized instruction for all of us as Christians. All of these Beatitudes are important, of course. But these words here are of supreme importance for the church, that we know persecution is possible, it's coming, but also joy is possible in the face of persecution. Okay, so the first thing that we need to know right up front is that living righteously, living as a Christian, is going to invite persecution. You can see that through these three verses, but especially in verses 10 and 11. We notice here, there's no way around it, is there? Three times in three verses, Jesus uses that word persecute or persecuted. He's talking about it, being very frank about it. But notice here how Jesus says that persecution can come in different forms, different ways to be persecuted. I don't know about you, but coming from the West, we often think about persecution usually just as police coming in to break up a church meeting and arresting Christians and putting them in jail. 
Now, yes, that is a form of persecution, but notice Jesus also mentions some other things. He also says you can be persecuted how? People can revile you, meaning they can insult you. They can mock you. They can utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. They can make false accusations against you, claiming that you have done something when you haven't, or claiming that you've left something undone that you should have. They can also mock you behind your back. They can curse you to your face. And yes, they can physically beat you and harm you. There's no single form of persecution. There's all these various things Jesus is trying to tell you here in verses 10 and 11 especially. Persecution can come in many different forms. But notice here, I think this is especially important. We need to see why Christians are persecuted. I mean, why is it that Christians are persecuted? It's maybe hardly needs to be said, but Christians aren't persecuted because of our economic status or our political affiliation or our social background. That's not the main reason why. I guess some Christians are mocked and scorned, uh, not so much because they're Christians, but because they are Christians who act arrogantly or proudly or mocking other people, right? They invite other people's sort of hostility because of their unrighteous behavior. But that's not what Jesus says here about Christians who are living faithfully. The reason Christians are persecuted, Jesus says, is because of righteousness sake. If you're living according to Jesus' words, in other words, if you've been living all of these beatitudes leading up to this, uh, applying them to your life, Jesus does have an order to these beatitudes after all. There's a reason that they follow on one after the other. If you've been doing all of these other things, Jesus says, you will be persecuted on my account. You will be persecuted for living righteously as a citizen in God's kingdom. That's what invites persecution. It's that lifestyle. Now, you and I might think, perhaps naively, I think somewhat naively, wouldn't living as a Christian actually be welcomed in the world? I mean, this is what would solve the world's problems, is if everybody was living according to Jesus' teachings here in the Beatitude. But no. The fact of the matter is, if you live this way, the world is not going to welcome you with open arms. Uh, They're going to mock you and even despise you. It's not just your lifestyle living righteously. Jesus also says in verse 11 that you'll be persecuted on my account. In other words, because your allegiance is tied to me. Jesus says because your priorities, everything revolves, everything takes its position in relationship to me. Uh, This is why a Christian can expect persecution. It's because of our loyalty to Christ. And I hope you can see and appreciate that. But the gospel, the gospel forces you to declare where your allegiance lies in this world. There's really only two ways to live in this world. You only have two choices in life. Are you going to follow Jesus and his teachings Or are you going to try to suppress them? That's what Jesus says here. There's no third way of living in life. Either you will be living righteously and pursuing Christ, or you will be living unrighteously and trying to suppress him 
and his teachings. And persecution and mistreatment of Jesus' servants is the way that people choose to silence Jesus. After all, friends, you think of biblical examples of this. People who have, in, in redemptive history, they have a lifestyle of righteousness. They have a loyalty to God and suffering for it. I think of some of the most prominent examples like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? They would not worship the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. They would not bow their knee before him. And so what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He put the three of them into the fiery furnace to die. Or you think of Daniel, right? Daniel told to pray only to King Darius. Daniel, in his righteous refusal, insisted on praying to his God, praying to Yahweh, praying three times a day to him, even though he knew it cost him, even though he knew that he'd be thrown into the lion's den. And yet, and yet, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, they refuse to compromise. In the same way, Christian, your loyalty to Christ, your lifestyle of devotion to him will invite hardship in this world. So the point, I think, of Jesus' teaching here what you need to understand is that Christians do not get a pass on problems just because you love and follow Jesus. On the contrary, the Bible tells us very clearly, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Now maybe for you as a Christian, this doesn't come as a profound shock to you. You've heard this before. And maybe you think, yeah, um, I'm a Christian. I know that persecution can be expected. When it comes, I'm just going to grit my teeth and bear it, get through it. Or maybe you're hearing this, and for you, it's kind of falling on fresh ears. You think, whoa, this, this sounds pretty serious. You know, if I'm, if I'm a Christian following Christ, you know, maybe I want to try to hide or avoid some of this persecution that might come. Maybe I should do everything I can to make myself hidden so that I can have a safer life. Or maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, you know what, I I haven't experienced any of this. Um, I've got a great life. Well, maybe for you as that, that last person, let me just say here, if you haven't experienced any sort of persecution as a Christian, it should cause you to go back and say, am I actually living according to all of Jesus' commands here then in the Beatitudes? Because if I am, Jesus says, I should expect persecution. If you go through your entire life as a Christian, never having experienced any sort of heat coming at you for it, it might be, it might be a warning sign that you're actually not pursuing the righteous life like you think you are. But if you're a Christian who says, I'm just going to grin and bear it when persecution comes, or if you're a Christian who says, I'm going to avoid it altogether, Well then, friends, let me ask you to open your heart, open your mind to what the Bible says about persecution. That you could open your mind and heart to the possibility that persecution is not something to just endure, gritting your teeth. And persecution is also not something that you should avoid altogether. But actually, persecution is something for your good. Now, why do I say that? How does the Bible speak about persecution? Do you know how the Bible, how Jesus 
teach us how righteous living is not just an invitation to persecution, but do you know it can actually be for your good? I mean, the, the Bible says the gospel is an invitation to persecution to actually assure you that persecution is not an accident outside of God's control, but that God can actually use that evil thing to accomplish a great thing in your life. What do I mean by that? Let me draw out three simple ways, three simple things that persecution can actually be a good thing for you to actually embrace in your life. Number one, if you're a Christian who's enduring persecution for righteousness' sake, you need to know that persecution proves your kingdom citizenship. It proves you're a citizen of God's kingdom. I mean, it shows, does it not, that you're a disciple of the king? Jesus, who lived a perfect life, he always lived righteously, never having failed to obey all of God's commands. Well, Jesus was mocked. He was reviled. He was scorned for it. He was the righteous one sent to save the world from its sin, and yet the world did not welcome him with open arms, did it? So why... Would the world welcome you with open arms if you're a citizen in his kingdom, right? It's a sign that you are a servant under the master if you're receiving the same treatment as he did. Remember Jesus' words in John 15, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So your persecution, Christian, actually proves that you're a citizen of God's kingdom, that you're a servant of the master. But number two, persecution actually proves that your faith is genuine. Is that not a good thing? Proving your faith is genuine? You wonder if you're a Christian sometimes? My friends, you never know how strong your arms are until you lift something heavy. You don't know the value of a precious metal until it's refined in a fire and proven by a fire. The same is true of your faith. You don't know the value of your faith until it's tested, proved by hardship. Isn't that what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, when he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials... So why rejoice? Because you're tested. Tested the genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, you may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And your, your testing under persecution proves that your faith is genuine. You know, many people hear Jesus' words, they endure for a while, And then when tribulation or persecution arises on Jesus' word, they immediately fall away. But those who persevere through persecution, whose faith is tested, friends, that's a sign to you. It's a sign to you that your faith is confirmed. It is genuine. But number three, if you're enduring, embracing persecution, if you're undergoing it, It also proves to you that Jesus is with you. And he's not left you. He's actually there. 
as you experience this. You see, Jesus so identifies with, he is so united with his believers. And he assures you he's walking with you. Think, for example, the Apostle Paul, before he is saved on that road to Damascus, while he was on that road and Jesus intervenes in his life. You know, prior to being the Apostle Paul, he is Saul, the persecutor of the church. When Jesus intervenes in Paul's life, what does he say? In that moment, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? Jesus doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those people over there? Jesus so identifies with his church, with his people. It's as if he is being persecuted himself when his people are undergoing persecution. And so, friend, for you too, you should not be left wondering when you're going through hardship for your faith, you should not be left wondering, is Jesus with me? Yes, he is. You should not be left wondering, does God know and care? Yes, he does. You should not be left wondering, is there any purpose for this? Yes, there is. Your persecution is proving to you that Jesus is with you. He's never left your side. I will never leave you or forsake you, he says. Persecution is a proof of your authentic relationship and union with Jesus Christ. And how you respond to persecution is proof that your faith is genuine. Uh, I heard a story recently that brought this home to me. I heard this story about a group of Christians in this country, uh, under underground church. And the authorities came and they broke up this worship service and... Some people were detained and arrested and taken away. And one police officer, he came and asked this young Christian woman, he said, so when did you become so passionate about Jesus? Do you know her answer? Her answer is very convicting. It's convicting for me. I hope it's convicting for you. Her answer was of the Holy Spirit. She said to this police officer, you know when... I became so passionate about Jesus. It's when you arrested me. That's when I became very passionate for Jesus. You see, friends, when when you're not arrested, when you're meeting with Jesus, when you're loving Jesus, that's great. That's good. But you really get put to the test when you get persecuted for it, don't you? When you find yourself still being faithful to Jesus, even when it means being arrested and persecuted, you know Jesus is with you. You know your faith is genuine. You know it's real. You know you're a true disciple of Jesus, and he promises that he's right there with you. If that's the case, if that's the case, then I want you to open yourself to the truth that persecution is not just something to grit your teeth through, It's not just something to endure that way. certainly isn't something to flee unnecessarily, but persecution is actually something to embrace as a Christian. That's what we need to see, I think, first here in verses 10 and 11. Yes, living righteously as a Christian, it's going to invite persecution. Jesus teaches us here here to embrace it. Before, because it's even for our good. But he also teaches us something 
Very shocking here in verse 12, does he not? Teaches us here, his teaching on persecution. It goes to a whole nother level. Put your eyes on it here in verse 12. He says, we don't just embrace persecution, but when it comes, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We just stop and think about that. Who teaches like this? And perhaps you're thinking, you know, I can maybe embrace persecution when it comes. I can kind of get my head around that now. But Jesus, you want me to rejoice at it, to be glad? I mean, if I, if I accept that truth, that's going to make my life pretty complicated. It's a very challenging teaching in some ways, a very paradoxical teaching. It's a teaching that goes against all the wisdom of this world. And you can be happy, joyful, some of your hardest moments. How is that the case? Well, Jesus gives us, I think, your three reasons why you can rejoice and be glad under persecution. How is that possible? Let me show you. First of all, reason number one for joy. And Jesus says you can rejoice and be glad because so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Reason number one, you can rejoice is that you're in good company. You're in good company. Now, Christian, you descend from a long line of saints who were persecuted before you. But they were strengthened. They rejoiced under persecution. They're in that hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, for example. You think of Abel. Abel was the first saint murdered. He's killed for his faith. I think of Noah, for example. Noah was mocked. He was scorned by all the world around him. We thought he was a fool. And yet he was an heir to righteousness. Or think of Moses. Moses, who led a persecuted people living in slavery in Egypt, mocked and scorned. They're beaten. Children killed. Moses leads them into the prom- to, to the promised land. Moses himself endured persecution, right? Hardship. And yet, as it says in the book of Hebrews, he considered the reproach of Christ. He considered sufferings like Christ himself of more value than all of the riches in Egypt. Christian, you're persecuted. You also stand in the same company of a saint like Stephen, the first martyr in the New Testament. You stand in the company of people like Paul and Silas who endured persecution in prison and they not only endured it, they embraced it and their response was to sing and give praises to God while they were in prison suffering. Christian, you stand in the company of someone like John who because of his faith was exiled to the island of Patmos and while he was there, Jesus gave him such a revelation of himself that John could hardly put it into words. We could go on here. You stand in the company of someone like Polycarp, who at the age of 86 was martyred for his faith. Polycarp, when the Roman authorities came and took him away, you know what he said? He said, 86 years I have served my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has been faithful to me all of those years. Why would I deny him now? 
and he was burned at the stake for it. Christian, if you're persecuted, you stand in the company of someone like Jan Hus, William Tyndale. You stand in the company of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jim Elliott. We could go on and on and on. The point is you stand in good company. You stand in the hall of faith. You stand in the hall of MVPs, so to speak, because you too are a faithful saint, suffers for righteousness' sake. That should be a cause for rejoicing to know that those saints who receive their reward, you stand with them and will receive yours as well. And that leads me to the second reason for joy that Jesus gives us here. Reason for joy number two, rejoice because you have a heavenly reward. Did you notice that in the text here? Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. Because what a comfort. Someone like that man, George Galatis, the whistleblower at that power station, he was insulted. He was mocked. People made false accusations against him. That man, George, lost a lot. He lost his reputation. He lost his livelihood. He lost his friends. He lost people's respect. He lost his career. He died a death for Christ. And yet Jesus' words to him, to you, is that Christians can have joy in the face of persecution because all of that earthly loss will be repaid and more with eternal blessings. That the eternal reward is so much greater than we can imagine than everything we've lost here on earth. It's so beyond our human comprehension that we can only have a glimpse of it. That's what Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't begin to fathom the riches of our heavenly ward. But Christian, I can promise you this. The heavenly reward that Jesus promises here is going to be so great that it makes all of the earthly treasures in this world, make all of those seem just like baubles, just like trinkets, just like little tiny toys in comparison to what you will receive in heaven. That the pearls of heaven are going to make everything on earth just seem like pebbles. All of the heavenly reward is going to make up for all the suffering and pain that you might endure in this life. I was helped by Samuel Rutherford. He put it so well, I think, when he speaks of the heavenly reward of glory that we'll step into as saints and our eternal reward. He says this, when we shall come home and enter to the possession of our brother Jesus' fair kingdom. And when our heads shall find the weight of the eternal crown of glory, and when we shall look back to the pains and sorrow to be less than one step or stride from a prison to glory, and that our little inch of time and suffering is not worthy 
of our first night's welcome home to heaven. Friends, your suffering in this life will be nothing compared to stepping foot in their glory. It's going to seem like one less than a step when you enter into your heavenly reward. So the question is, are you, are you ready to not just face persecution as a Christian? Are you ready to embrace it? Are you ready, as difficult as it might be, to rejoice in it? Because you're in good company, but also because of this heavenly reward that is promised to you. There's a third reason that you can rejoice and be glad when you suffer for righteousness' sake. The reason is very simply this. You can rejoice because Jesus is the model of living righteously yet being persecuted. In other words, you can rejoice because Jesus has gone on through you, gone on through it before you. He did it for you, believer. You can embrace persecution and rejoice in it because Jesus has experienced all first. And Jesus shows how we too can go through persecution with joy. You know Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He's the only Savior of the world. And the world should have welcomed him with open arms. Because through faith in him alone, you can have your greatest problem solved. You can have your sin forgiven and be made right with God. But instead of a warm welcome, Jesus was mocked and scorned. He was reviled falsely accused. He was nailed to a cross for his righteous living. So he experienced the worst persecution imaginable. And yet he did it for you. Jesus didn't just endure, grit his teeth, and just sort of begrudgingly go through all that persecution. He did it, as the book of Hebrews says, for the joy of that was set before him. Out of his love for you, believer, he endured all the mockery, all the shame. Out of his love for you, believer, Jesus experienced and went through loss. Jesus lost his reputation on this earth. Jesus lost people's respect. Jesus lost even his closest friends the night that he was betrayed and when he was crucified. Jesus even lost the favor of his heavenly father on the cross because he bore the weight of your sin. And yet all of that was nothing compared to the rich reward that Jesus won at the cross when he rose again from the grave. And when he ascended into heaven and he had the crown of glory placed upon him and he took his seat of glory next to God his father. And now he promises that you too can rejoice because your heavenly reward believer is waiting for you because he has secured it. And he is waiting for you to take your place in his kingdom. Now friends, I don't want to sit here and trash other religions, other philosophies, other worldviews in this world. I don't want to demean other people's beliefs and other gods. 
But let's face it here. Let's be honest. What other Savior, what other person is like Jesus and is like the Christian faith? We serve a Savior who doesn't ask his disciples to go through anything he hasn't already gone through first. He doesn't ask you as a Christian to walk down a path that he hasn't already gone down himself. What other Savior is like that? What other faith is like that? Jesus knows exactly what you've gone through as he endured it himself. We follow a Savior who is selflessly entered into the sinfulness of this world in order to give his life so that you may believe, so that you may have faith in him, so that you may rest in him, so that you may have blessing in him, so that you may be raised again in him, so that you may rise to your heavenly reward with him, so that you may know eternal joy with him that can never perish or spoil or fade like everything else on this earth. What other faith is like that? There isn't one. So yes, Christian, you can expect persecution for living for Jesus in this world, but joy is possible in the face of persecution as Jesus himself has shown you in his life. Now, I think for many of us, hear Jesus' teachings here, absorb his words, we still feel like, yeah, this is still hard for me to do. Yes, I want to embrace persecution when it comes. Yes, I am going to rejoice when it comes. But I just don't know when that moment comes, am I actually going to be able to do it? Am I going to be able to do it? Friends, if you're trusting in Jesus, if you're looking to him in faith, you can. Many of you know um, the person, Corrie ten Boom. You've heard of her, I mean. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch woman, uh, lived through Nazi occupation of the Netherlands during World War II. Corrie ten Boom and her family, very righteous, godly Christians, lived in the city of Harlem. Her father was an extremely godly man, raising his children to love the Lord. As Corrie ten Boom and her family watched the Nazis come through the Netherlands, take away, haul people away to prison and concentration camps, you know what they did? They turned their home into a refuge, hiding Jews and other people in their homes, knowing that it could cost them their lives, that they could go to prison or even worse. Corrie ten Boom wrestled with wondering, could I become a martyr for Jesus' sake, living righteously for him? And one day she asked her father, she confessed this to her father, like I said, a very godly man. She said, Father, I just don't know. If, if, it, if that day comes, could I, could I endure? Could I go through that persecution? Could I be a martyr? Could I willingly do it and even rejoice in it? Do you know what her father said to her? Her father said, Corey, when we take the train from Harlem into Amsterdam, when do I give you the money for the ticket? Do I give you the money for that ticket for that train a month of time, a month ahead of time? No. Do I give it to you several weeks ahead of time? 
Uh, do I give it to you several days ahead of time? When do I give you that ticket? I give you the, the money for the ticket when we get on board the train. And so it is with God. When you need God's grace, he'll give it to you at the proper time. And so it is with you, believer. Is God going to give you the grace when you need it to face persecution and hardship? Yes, he is. Because he's faithful. He's going to give it to you at the proper time. Now, Jesus is not telling us in these verses that Christians should go out seeking persecution, but you don't need to fear it. You can even be glad in it. As Jesus says, I will give you the grace that you need at the moment to embrace it, to rejoice in it. I'll give you the grace to know that I am in control. I'll give you the grace to know that I am going to use it for your good. I'm going to give you the grace to know that I am right there with you. I'm going to give you the grace to confirm the genuineness of your faith and affirm that you're a citizen of my kingdom and that I am the king and I'm coming again to bring you into my heavenly kingdom to enjoy your eternal reward. Friends, that's a good news. Good news that you can know even when you face persecution as a Christian. Yes, you'll face it living righteously, but you can rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you.